welcome to a special episode of the ASSP Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. The COVID-19 is raising many questions about how safety professionals can protect their workers and slow the spread of the virus. Here to help answer some of those questions is ASSP President-Elect Deb Roy. Deb is president of Safe Tech Consultants Incorporated, providing safety consulting for global clients. She has more than 35 years of occupational safety and health experience and is past corporate director of health, safety, and wellness at L.L. Bean. She has been involved in pandemic planning at work sites and at the state and federal levels for the last 12 years. Throughout our conversation, Deb will be referring to many documents that are available online. The transcript of our conversation will be posted and will include active hyperlinks to those referenced documents. We would also like to note before we begin that the information shared in this podcast is based on the data that were available from trusted sources and the phase of response in the U.S. on March 23, 2020. As the situation continues to change rapidly, please refer to current guidance from your local or state public health organization. And with that, Deb, I'd like to welcome you on. I know there are a lot of questions as this pandemic continues to spread across the country, so we really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise with our listeners. Happy to help. So I thought we we could uh, kind of start from the beginning and the, the terminology associated with this particular virus. So we hear people say coronavirus, COVID-19. So what is the proper terminology? Coronavirus is actually a family of viruses, and that even includes the common cold. Um, you may have heard of SARS and MERS in the past, um, and this novel new disease called COVID-19. All of those are coronaviruses. They're different types of coronaviruses. Um, and you should be aware that the scientific name for the virus itself is actually SARS-CO-V-2. So uh, SARS-CoV-2 is the actual virus name. Um, and interestingly enough, the SARS disease that has uh, occurred in around 2003 actually uh, has a similar name. Um, so you may see in the scientific liter literature SARS-CoV-1. That's actually the SARS from the past as opposed to the current um, virus that we're talking about today. And so SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that emerged in Wuhan, China in late 2019 that's now causing the pandemic that we're experiencing. Okay, now there, there's a lot of talk of preventative measures uh, people can take to help protect themselves from COVID-19. So one particular question uh, is I have is in regards to uh, gargling. Does gargling prevent the virus from getting into the human body? Actually, there's no evidence that gargling will prevent COVID-19. Um, there's a really good uh, World Health Organization reference. Um, they actually have a uh, public Mythbusters uh, page, which I love. So I'd highly recommend looking at that periodically because they do continue to add new material. Okay. Now, um, 
from an international perspective, is there any evidence that the virus will not sustain in higher temperatures beyond 28 degrees Celsius, which would be 82.4 degrees Fahrenheit? Um, Really, this is a brand new virus, um, and we really don't have any information um, regarding that yet. I know I've seen lots of news reports about is it seasonal or not, um, but if you think about it, right now in the world, COVID-19 is occurring um, in a lot of different areas. Um, I think we're up to something like 150 countries, and obviously not all of them are in winter. Um, so uh, right now we don't have any evidence that it is seasonal or that warm places will not get the disease. And if you think about it, there's a really good reason for that. Um, you know, colds can still happen in the summer for those of us that have um, uh, are in winter right now, but the fact is they're they're generally not very widespread. Um, the difference with this virus is that it's brand new, so none of us have any antibodies against it. So um, it's going to spread pretty easily if it has a host, regardless of the temperature. So I think you know we just don't have enough information. But I think it's um, probably not a great idea to think it's just going to go away when summer occurs. Okay, now there's a lot of talk about uh, social distancing, steps that people can take to help uh, protect themselves from possibly contracting the virus. So, for example, how would you separate children in schools that hold daycare during the day for parents? Uh, For example, 50 plus kids in the cafeteria or a gym. What would you uh, advise in a situation like that? Obviously, even in areas where there are shelter-in-place orders, um, young children may need to be cared for because they're children of emergency responders or healthcare workers or other people who are providing services as part of the infrastructure. So childcare will still need to happen. The best thing to do is to have a large enough space so that kids can be spaced appropriately into smaller groups with some social distancing and to provide activities that allow that to occur. The really critical thing in addition to the social distancing within those areas is really to stress uh, hand washing and other hygiene methods like cleaning surfaces and so forth. And the good news is about this virus is it's pretty easy to kill on surfaces. So um, the traditional cleaners work very well. So having high touch surfaces cleaned and having everybody, uh, kids and the staff do good hand washing really will make a difference. The other thing is as weather allows, outdoor activities could be encouraged. And um, I know in the big cities, they're encouraging people to be indoors, but it's primarily because there have been gatherings of people who are not really uh, addressing social distancing. Um, Being outside and walking or in the case of kids, biking or uh, doing other kinds of outdoor activities is still a good thing. And it's much easier to socially distance outside than inside. 
Okay, now shifting shifting to the to the workplace. What would you do with employees who have co- had contact with someone who was sick that left the job site? Maybe they haven't been confirmed with COVID nineteen and aren't technically presumptive. Uh, what guidance would you offer in a case like that? Well, first you make a good point. When somebody leaves the work site uh, because they're sick, the fact is that you're not going to know right away whether they actually are positive or not. And in fact, at this point in the pandemic, there may or may not be testing available to the area. So if somebody is a presumptive case, um, you really want to look back at close contacts of those individuals. Close contact is defined as being within approximately six feet of the individual for a prolonged period of time. And the US CDC is using 15 minutes as a prolonged period of time. So, um, or if you've had direct contact with infectious secretions from that individual, for example, being coughed on. So that's what makes up a close contact. So those individuals in the workplace um, should be notified that they were potentially exposed. And, um, and then you can actually then evaluate whether or not um, something else needs to be done. And I'll explain the something else in a moment. Um, but basically, one of the things I want to get across is that if an employee just walked by the sick person or they were in an area beyond six feet, there's really low risk of exposure. And in that case, you just need to clean the sick person's work area um, and to continue to clean high-touch areas. Uh, If indeed you do have um, close contact cases in a workplace, uh, originally the guidance talked about having those people quarantine uh, at home for 14 days. We are now past that in this phase of the pandemic. So all we would ask employees to do at this point is to monitor their health and take their temperature um, a couple times a day. They can still work in that situation. Uh, they still need to follow all the other social distancing guidelines and hygiene guidelines. But if indeed they start to have a temperature or they uh, start to have symptoms, they need to notify the employer and stay home. Now, uh, taking that a step further, how do we handle a situation if an employee comes into work and is experiencing the symptoms of COVID-19? Our concern is to limit exposure and keeping staff safe. Working from home is not an option. So what advice would you give employers to handle such a situation? So in that case, if the workplace has masks available, they should give the person a mask or ask them to use cough etiquette if that's not a, uh, an option. And cough etiquette means coughing into their elbow or shoulder. Um, and they should uh, leave the workplace. If you need a moment for them to get a ride or something like that, put, somebody, put them in a, uh, in a separate area so that they're not exposing other employees in that case. But otherwise, if they can leave the workplace right away, they should gather their things and leave. Um, Once they get home, they should call their healthcare provider for care and instructions. Um, If then the healthcare provider uh, tells them that they need to stay home, um, depending on the status of their employment, they may actually be, be 
entitled to disability benefits in the company, depending on if that's part of the benefit package. If not, family medical leave uh, would apply in the U.S. Um, some employers are uh, providing people with pandemic pay in that situation. Others are uh, having people use their paid time off. It's pretty much all over the map. Um, and the, at this point, um, there, there is no uh, federal requirement as to the process that an employer uses. Okay, so what is, what is a prudent length of time without medical testing for an employer to require an employee to remain away from work after they've recovered from flu-like symptoms? Uh, say, for example, an employee had a fever and a cough. It got better without testing or medical care. They don't know if it was COVID-19 or not. How long before it's prudent to allow them to return to work? Okay, you may have heard us say earlier on um, during the containment phase of the pandemic that people should stay home for 14 days. That's no longer the guidance. Um, and the reason is that in many parts of the country, there is now sustained uh, local transmission. And because of that, we've now, the guidance has now um, been changed. So the answer it would be, if indeed somebody had symptoms, um, they need to stay home for at least three days or a full 72 hours after they have completely recovered. And what that means is they have uh, no fever, and they're not using any fever-reducing medicine like ibuprofen or Tylenol. Um, and they also need to have improvement of their respiratory symptoms. In other words, they don't have shortness of breath. They don't have cough at this point. And at least seven days have passed since the symptoms first appeared. So really what we're talking about is people being out uh, potentially a week unless they have complications if they're treating at home. Okay, so uh, uh, another example. Say you have an employee who was medically confirmed with COVID-19. They are now symptom-free. How long before it is prudent to allow them to return to work? Uh, for those people that are tested um, and have had symptoms, they can return to work under the following conditions. They have a resolution of their fever without um, the use of medications like ibuprofen or acetaminophen. Uh, they have improvement of their respiratory symptoms and two negative COVID-19 tests. Now, keep in mind at this point that fewer and fewer people are getting tested if they can care for themselves um, appropriately at home. So this is probably a less likely scenario today than it was even two weeks ago. And then lastly, I want to just mention, if you have individuals that have laboratory confirmed COVID-19, but they haven't had any symptoms, in other words, they're asymptomatic, um, they can return to work in the seven days since the date of their first positive test if they've had no subsequent uh, illness. So there are some people that will test positive and will not have symptoms. Uh, there are other people that will test positive and they, they are what we call pre-symptomatic. They'll have symptoms that start a few days later. So in this case, if they're truly asymptomatic with no symptoms, um, then they still have to be out of work for the same seven days. Uh, we discussed a little earlier about uh, how 
heat and humidity can affect how long the droplets or the virus are held in the air. Uh, how so? And does lowering or increasing humidity decrease the viability of the virus? Okay, so data are pretty uh, limited still because this is a new virus. There is actually a small new study by the U.S. National Institutes of Health. Um, it's not yet been peer-reviewed, but it appears that the SARS-CoV-2 um, virus actually will dry out and then uh, die on a surface over a period of time. Um, so the, the key here is that humidity may impact it. For, for example, those of us that are here in cold weather at this time of the year, it's pretty low humidity. Um, so it's possible that on the surface, uh, the virus may actually um, die quicker in those conditions. But that's only a, uh, a theoretical um, piece of information right now, we don't know for sure. And a lot of what I'm seeing in the media is based on other coronaviruses uh, and testing that's been done in the past. We don't have good uh, information other than this one small study right now on surface contamination. Okay, now shifting shifting back to the, the workplace and thinking about specific work environments. Say I work in a foundry or assembly manufacturing facility, what are the five most important things I can do in the next week to help protect myself from the virus? Well, uh, at this point, if you haven't already done so, here would be my recommendations. First, to make sure that you have developed an infectious disease preparedness and response plan. The second would be to prepare to implement basic infection prevention measures. As we've talked about, um, washing hands, um, coughing in the elbow, um, making sure that surfaces are cleaned. The third would be developing policies and procedures for prompt identification and isolation of six people, if appropriate. Um, the fourth would be to develop, implement, and communicate about workplace flexibilities and protections. And that's a pretty critical one. If, if employees know that they have protection, for example, if a company has a pandemic pay policy so that people that are paid hourly can be um, still getting their paycheck if they need to be out of the workforce, um, that's really important because that'll protect the whole group if those that are sick can stay home. Um, and lastly, uh, implementing workplace controls. And that's really the social distancing uh, sort of controls that we've talked about. It's putting barriers in place. It's actually keeping people at least six feet away. Uh, for example, you may be able to rearrange uh, conveyors so that people are at different um, workstations and they're on opposite sides so that you have natural separations. Uh, those would be the kinds of things that would be involved in workplace controls. Um, and these items come from a new OSHA guidance document that's specific to COVID-19 uh, that I would highly recommend that all OSHA professionals take a look at. Uh, and to that, even though the, um, the question asked for five items, I would add a sixth one. I would say take care of yourself and your employees by identifying stress reduction activities or resources that are available 
for your work location. Um, and that may include uh, stress reduction for people that are teleworking, uh, because that is different than what most people are used to dealing with. Um, and also those that are still in a, in a workplace. Um, given the level of information that's out there and the disinformation that's out there, people are really stressed right now. And I think it's important to think about what other resources do I have? If your company has an employee's assistance program, can that be done through um, video conferencing? Um, can you send out messages to your workforce um, that are stress reduction techniques that they could use? So all of those things I think are really critical and should be part of your planning. Now, uh, sticking with with the uh, the manufacturing working environment in ma in manufacturing spaces, do you think that pedestal fans could spread the virus across larger distances? There's actually been some thought that increasing airflow might be helpful, but I'm not aware of any specific research on pedestal fans. Um, my recommendation would be that you, if you're going to use pedestal fans, that you position the fans away from employees so that it can create air movement, but not move the SARS-CoV-2 droplets um, towards other employees if someone coughs or sneezes. Um, and if they do that without coughing into their sleeve or a tissue. So it's, it's really important, I think, to have airflow, but not have it directed at the individuals or the walkways with with, uh, with regard to to safety professionals specifically in in a case such as this uh, for someone with very little knowledge on infectious diseases as it pertains to the safety profession what should we be focusing on in the workplace for the time being um as I mentioned earlier, there is a new OSHA guidance for businesses. Uh, that's a really good place to start if you've never done this before. Um, this is also, I think, for us professionals, a great opportunity to learn more about these kinds of exposures. If you haven't had any dealings with infectious disease before, um, this is a great time to take advantage of that. There's lots of great information out there. The World Health Organization website is uh, has great information. I mentioned earlier there's a, a Mythbusters section on there, um, which I really like, and that's that it's very uh, easy to understand. The Center for Disease Control in the U.S. has fabulous information as well uh, that's at a level that I think uh, everyone can understand. So I would say use it as an opportunity uh, to learn more. And there are those are the resources that I would focus on. Okay, now uh, another another example of how safety professionals, employers can uh, respond in different working environments. Say you have uh, a company in the utility industry that maybe have crews of two to four people in the same vehicle traveling one to two hours from a shop. Any ideas on how to protect workers when social distancing is not possible due to things such as the size of a vehicle? Unfortunately, in this case, there are not great options. Um, reducing the crews to one or two per vehicle um, would be preferable if you can do it, and then spacing them out within the vehicle. Otherwise, um, using a strong personal hygiene practices um, with those employees is really critical. Um, and 
being sure they understand that they should not be working or traveling with others if there's any possibility of a respiratory illness, if they have any symptoms. Um, barriers are not typically possible in this particular case, but what you can do is make sure they have the tools they need. So for, for example, providing tissues and a trash receptacle that they can throw them in immediately, having alcohol-based hand sanitizer available that's at least 60% alcohol. And that's because these crews may not have hand washing available. Once they get to a location with hand washing, they should use soap and water. And that's still the best technique. You really only want to use hand sanitizer when you can't get to um, soap and water. And then giving them uh, disinfectants or disposable towels um, and wipes so that they can clean the work surfaces and any high touch surfaces on the vehicle. For example, the handles, armrests, those kinds of things. For, for those looking to develop a plan for their specific workplace around this, is there an infectious disease prevention and control plan available or any examples and templates that organizations are currently utilizing? Yes, there are. There, there's guidance from CDC, um, and they do have a worksite section uh, on the CDC website, and um, they have great guidance for employers in that section. Um, and also, as I mentioned earlier, there's the new document um, from OSHA. Going back to our utility worker example from earlier, uh, utility workers must deal in public spaces, you know, linemen and meter techs. So moving beyond PPE, is there anything we can do to encourage facilities to be kept healthier, like better ventilation or increasing fresh air intake? Um, like the question before about the pedestal fans, um, there isn't anything um, in the research that addresses this yet, but it it makes sense that more airflow and increasing fresh air uh, would improve the, the situation. So I think that's a, that's a great opportunity. And then also to keep the cleaning going with the high touch surfaces, because that's, that's probably the, the most critical um, in addition to hand hygiene. Uh, go, going back to our utility worker example from, from earlier and talking about workers being in a small space such as a, a vehicle for, for potentially hours at a time, what precautions do you recommend to protect employees who work in the transportation industry? Uh, same kind of thing in the transportation industry. Um, it, you want to minimize the number of people in a cab of a vehicle um, to try to, to reduce that risk. Um, and then it, it's, it's cleaning surfaces and good hand hygiene. I also want to speak to the, the risk of exposure to packages or pallets. I know people have concerns about the idea of packages still moving through the, the industry, but the risk to exposure from packages or pallets appears to be low at this point. And this is due to that study that I mentioned earlier, that small NIH study. Um, they did address that the SARS-CoV-2 was viable on cardboard for up to 24 hours. But one of the things, if you read the study carefully, is there was variability in that data. So they actually did that study with a standard temperature and humidity. What we don't know right now is how long those 
the the virus will actually be viable on that cardboard. We know it's alive for up to 24 hours. What we don't know is can you actually get the disease if you touch that contaminated area, then touch your eyes, nose, or mouth um, directly? Is there any possibility of you getting that disease? That's the piece we don't know from this study or any others at this point. So in general, because of poor survivability of coronaviruses in general on surfaces, there's likely a pretty low risk of spread from products or packaging. Um, and particularly those that are shipped over a period of days or weeks at ambient temperature. So um, those packages are very unlikely to actually have um, any viable virus on them. Um, coronaviruses are generally thought to be spread most often by respiratory droplets. And currently there's no evidence to support transmission uh, associated with imported goods. And there have not been any cases that we're aware of in the United States associated with imported goods. Um, so there's a lot of rumors uh, swirling around this issue. And, and I want to just put those to rest. Um, imported goods are not a risk. The time it takes for products to travel um, is generally weeks. And so the virus is not going to survive on, a, on an imported good for that period of time. Keep in mind that this will evolve since this is a new virus, and we should see more information in the future uh, as it becomes available. So the recommendations for employees in the transportation industry are really the same as all general employer work sites. It's really to use social distancing when interacting with other persons, using strong hygiene practices, and not working when you have respiratory symptoms. Okay, uh, shifting gears here a little bit, there's a study gaining traction that found the virus can stay on some surfaces for up to two to three days. What are your thoughts on the credibility of this study, its value and relevance, and does it seem like there's credible concern that someone coming into contact with exposed surfaces might face an elevated risk? So actually, um, there is this one small study from NIH that I mentioned earlier. It hasn't been peer-reviewed yet since this particular virus is so new. It provides some guidance, but more study is needed. Um, again, what we don't know yet is if somebody touching the surface with live SARS-CoV-2 a few hours after somebody has um, coughed on it really will become infected. According to CDC, it may be possible that a person can get COVID-19 by touching a surface or an object that has the virus on it and then touching their own mouth and nose. But it's not thought to be the main way that SARS-CoV-2 spreads. The main way that it spreads is through droplets. And that means somebody coughing directly on you or directly onto a surface that while it's wet, you touch and then touch your eyes, nose, and mouth so or mouth. Um, so the idea here is hand washing really is a great way to minimize that and obviously not touching your, your face as well. Continuing on, the, on that note of how long the virus can live on surfaces, uh, do we know how long the virus can live on paper, such as mail, for example? Right now, we don't know. And again, what we have is the study that I mentioned. Um, 
they didn't look specifically at male. Uh, but again, the likelihood of transmission through the male is very low. And so the key here is that if you touch the male and you have any concern, um, wash your hands. Um, and as long as you're not touching your face, um, once you've washed your hands for at least 20 seconds after you've touched a surface that you're uncomfortable with, um, that will address the virus. The virus is easily um, removed by washing your hands. Okay, now th there's been a lot of uh, conversation uh, around COVID-19 regarding, regarding PPE. Now, um, can you recommend protocols for the specific PPE needed when entering a residence that may have sick or quarantined individuals? Sure. Um, there is guidance uh, on the CDC website specific to public health personnel who enter a residence. Um, they do specify the PPE needed, and it's essentially a gown, gloves, um, mask, eye protection, and or a face shield, depending on the procedures being done. Um, it is risk specific. So I would suggest taking a look at that uh, public health guidance. It's very detailed um, on the CDC website. Okay, now as this pandemic has continued to spread, there's been talk of flattening the curve and the steps we can take to help prevent further spread of the virus. Now, has the U.S. already had the coronavirus wave in December, January, everyone thought they had the flu or testing negative and taking several weeks to heal. So what's your thought on where the U.S. currently is on the trajectory of the virus? Actually, the, the first case that we're aware of happened, I believe, January 21st in the U.S., which was a travel case. Um, we don't really know if there were cases prior to that. And the best way to uh, determine the answer to a question is to do serology testing of those who are ill during the time frame you mentioned in um, December and January. Um, we're in the early stages in the U.S. of developing a process to do serology testing. And serology testing, by the way, is a blood test. Um, what it does is it actually looks at whether or not you have antibodies to that particular virus. And so um, given the need to focus right now on caring for those that are currently ill um, and using personal protective equipment and so forth to do that, it's going to take some time and uh, for this kind of thing to be available. Um, and likely the serology testing won't be available till after the pandemic is over. Um, so um, I have provided a link. There is a method that's been identified for serology, um, but it's not going to be something that you should expect to happen during the actual pandemic. It'll come later. Be sure to listen to part two of our conversation with Deb Roy for further insights on the impact of COVID-19, including OSHA record keeping on cases of the virus, PPE, social distancing in the workplace, and more. You can find a recording of Deb's recent coronavirus Ask the Expert Q&A and other useful information about COVID-19 at ASSP.org coronavirus. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the ASSP Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.